This is Guns and Butter. So that this uh, Muslims versus cartoons has become the new meme of the so-called war on terror. And the Charlie Hebdo event, which mobilized five million people in France to march, uh, was uh, one a spectacular centerpiece event. And I predict that they're going to keep using this Muslims versus cartoons meme to keep the war on terror going for several years. And the myth of the so-called war on terror, which is really the myth of 9-11, justifies the current destruction of liberty, the destruction of economies with too much military spending and indebtedness to the international banksters. Everything that we're experiencing today, all of the things that have gotten so much worse since 9-11, are justified due to this myth that we're supposedly under assault by Islamic terrorists. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Was It the French 9-11? Kevin Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, humanities, and other subjects at several American colleges and universities, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He holds a Ph.D. in African Languages, Arabic, with an Islamic Studies focus from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is one of the world's best-known Muslim critics of the War on Terror. He is the editor of two interfaith anthologies, 9-11 and American Empire, Volume 2, Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out, and We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11. He is the author of Truth, Jihad, and Questioning the War on Terror. Kevin Barrett has appeared many times on Fox, CNN, PBS, and other broadcast outlets, and is a frequent guest on international broadcast media, including Press TV, Russia Today, and Al Atiyah, and has lectured extensively in Morocco, Turkey, and Iran, as well as the U.S. and Europe. Dr. Kevin Barrett, welcome. It's good to be with you, Bonnie. Kevin, you have edited and contributed to a new anthology, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11. After the shooting and killing of cartoonists at the French magazine Charlie Hebdo in Paris on January 7, 2015, there immediately followed a meme voiced around the world, Je suis Charlie, or the English version, We are Charlie Hebdo. What was this lame slogan supposed to mean? Well, it was a way of sort of forcing mass identification with the slain cartoonists and editors at the magazine Charlie Hebdo. And I think it was a a typical divide-and-conquer psychological operation because it essentially divided uh, non-Muslims from Muslims. No Muslim could ever say, Je suis Charlie, because the Charlie Hebdo publication had been specializing in over-the-top, extreme, blasphemous, uh, pornographic Islamophobia for years. So by corralling everybody else into saying, I am Charlie Hebdo. We are all Charlie Hebdo. We stand in solidarity with Charlie Hebdo, while all the Muslims are kind of off on the side, like going, oh, man. (laughs) You know, it it basically divided us, and it continued this program that's been in place since at least 9-11. Actually, it was prepared before that, 
But this is about creating a new enemy to replace the lost communist enemy of the Cold War, and that enemy, of course, is Islam and Muslims. This is very convenient for various special interests, uh, military-industrial complex, the hardline Zionists, and of course those are the people who were behind it. Now, um, one of the things I found ironic about this uh, Je suis Charlie is that it was supposed to be uh, a celebration of free speech. But then right after this event, uh, didn't the French government start arresting people for free speech? That's right. It was one of those kind of mind-numbing Orwellian contradictions, uh, a lot like what happened after 9-11, when we were told that the reason they attacked us was they hate our freedoms. So let's destroy freedom. Let's shred the Bill of Rights, pass the Patriot Act, and lock down the country. It made no sense whatsoever that that would be the way to, to react to an attack on freedom. But that's what happened. And by in embodying a contradiction like that uh, in, in the society, it essentially stops people from thinking. You know, as George Orwell said, that if, if you can say two plus two make four, then everything else goes along with that. But if Big Brother can convince you <laughs> that two plus two make three, you're in serious trouble because you can't, you can't use logic and evidence to think your way out of that box. And so they did the same kind of thing again with Charlie Hebdo. They made everybody march. Five, they got five million people in the streets of France marching in solidarity with Charlie Hebdo and in solidarity with absolute free speech, which is, of course, what Charlie Hebdo was supposed to represent. But then, immediately afterward, they started arresting people for saying things that the French government didn't approve of. Uh, over 100 people total, I believe, were arrested uh, over the months following the Charlie Hebdo event. And I think there were over 50 or so uh, very quickly, like within a couple of weeks. And one of them was Dieudonné, who is France's most famous, some would say most notorious comedian. He used to be socially acceptable until he started telling hard truths about uh, Zionism, uh, the, the war on the Middle East and things like that. And suddenly he was blackballed and he's been persecuted by the French government ever since. So right after the Charlie Hebdo shooting, uh, he tweeted a very dark joke, uh, and that joke apparently was not very funny to the French government because they went and arrested him for it and then shut down his upcoming tour. And they also arrested uh, dozens of other people, including high school kids who did cartoon parodies of Charlie Hebdo and things like that. So, so this uh, celebration of free speech in France was accompanied by the biggest crackdown on political free speech in the history of modern France. Yes, um, I've noticed, and you mentioned 9-11 as well, is that what the authorities accuse other people of doing is exactly what they're doing. It's like a projection. That's right. That's right. And, and we see this especially with you know, powerful entities that want to bully less powerful entities. They typically accuse their victims of wanting to do or doing what they, in fact, are doing. The bully always accuses the victim of being the aggressor. And we see this even on, in schoolyards, where the schoolyard bully will, uh, will take, take a little kid and take their hand and like, you know, make the kid slap the bully on the face or something and say, why did you hit me? Or else they'll maybe just say, why did you hit me just out of the blue? And the kid will say, I didn't hit you. you know, and then the bully will beat up the kid. And that's exactly what the uh, U.S. has been doing for well over a century, uh, claiming that it was the merciless heathen you know, Indian savages 
who were the real aggressors, uh, and, and that was an excuse to exterminate them. And you know, every big war we fought has been pretty much along those lines. The U.S. has always been the more powerful entity. It's always accused the uh, people it's fighting of being the aggressors when they never are. Because why would they? The, the, the victim, the weak party, never is the aggressor. It's always the bully, the strong party, who's the aggressor. But they always have to make up an excuse for their aggression. And we see this in spades over in occupied Palestine, where the Zionist entity, otherwise known as Israel, claims that Palestinians are trying to push them into the sea. When, in fact, this is a, a genocide in which the Zionists are pushing the Palestinians into the sea. So it's, it's, a, it's typical, it's unfortunately kind of in human nature, apparently, to behave this way. If we become conscious of it, maybe we can uh, moderate it a little bit or even someday, uh, God willing, put an end to it. Uh, Kevin, as a quick aside, and I don't know whether this is true or not, but it's been playing on my mind. I saw a tweet after the millions of people marching around Paris. I saw uh, someone tweeted a picture of the uh, leaders of the Western world, of course, leading the march. But this uh, camera view was taken higher up, and it showed a huge blank space behind them. Now, do you think this was photoshopped, or did they do a photo op when there really were not millions of people behind them? Do you happen to well, know? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. That was a photo op. What they did was the uh, the leaders went to supposedly lead the mass march of uh, millions in the streets of Paris, but they're not going to expose all those world leaders uh, to a big crowd. They're not going to let them march right in front of an actual crowd of ordinary people. So what they did was they took the leaders off on a side street that was really blocked off with massive security. Nobody could get anywhere near them. And they filmed the leaders marching down that street with nobody behind them. And then they took that film and they spliced it or, or you know, the video equivalent of, of photoshopped it into the footage of the actual march to make it appear as though the world leaders were leading the march, when in fact they were not. And this is just one of the numerous, almost countless examples of Orwellian deception that characterized today's mainstream media. Oh, thank you for explaining that, Kevin, because I always wondered about that. I only saw that once, and I never read anything about that at all. So, uh, so that was a real picture. Uh, well, yeah, they, they took a real picture of the leaders, and they took a real picture of the march, and they spliced them together to make it look like the leaders were leading the march when they weren't. And, of course, this is discussed in the book, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo. What is some of the incontrovertible evidence that the shooting attack on the French magazine Charlie Hebdo was a false flag operation? Well, the, you know, the question, of course, is where to start. Sometimes when I discuss these things, I start with context. Uh, which gives you circumstantial evidence. But let's, let's just start right with the kind of the hard evidence. Uh, one strong piece of evidence that really woke me up, and you know, I, I, was, I was taken in by this for at least a few seconds. Uh, it seemed plausible to me that there could be a couple of hothead Muslims that would go shoot at the Charlie Hebdo offices. So my initial reaction when I heard there had been a shooting there was I assume this one might not be a false flag. Probably, you know, I, I didn't think it was. But then uh, early on, we started hearing various um, bits of news that changed my mind pretty quickly. And, and one of them was that the interior minister of France, Bernard Cazeneuve, claimed that the reason they were able to catch the shooters uh, was because they had left an ID card in an abandoned getaway car. And, and this struck me as both preposterous and all too typical of false flag operations. 
uh, in which the patsies, that is the people who are to be blamed for a very carefully orchestrated professional attack, are set up to take the blame often by these kinds of really blatantly obvious means, these none-too-subtle means of dropping an ID card somewhere. You know, they tried that with the Kennedy assassination. They claimed initially that they knew they were after Oswald because he had dropped his ID card at the site of the shooting of Officer J.D. Tippett in Dallas. Uh, and then the, the media reacted with such skepticism that the Dallas Police Department uh, took it back and then said, no, actually, we didn't find an ID card for Oswald. And likewise, on 9-11, we had alleged discoveries of passports at the World Trade Center where supposedly nothing was left of the plane. Not one identifiable part of either of the two planes that supposedly hit the Trade Center was ever recovered. And the, even the black boxes they tell us were never recovered, which is utterly impossible. Uh, but they did supposedly find a hijacker's passport, the passport of Sukami, who was supposedly one of the hijackers. And they also told us that they found hijacker's passport in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, uh, on the perimeter of the 10 by 15 foot hole in the ground with no plane wreckage, no sign of any plane crash, where they tell us that Flight 93 melted magically into the soft ground and just completely disappeared, leaving no trace. That's the official story of what happened in 93. So, so we see these ridiculous situations where Obviously, uh, evidence has been planted to implicate patsies in these kinds of operations. So when Kaisnov said that the only, their only mistake was that they dropped their ID card in an abandoned getaway car, uh, my eyeballs just started involuntarily rolling. <laughs> uh, all of the witnesses said these look like highly trained paramilitary guys. Uh, such people are highly unlikely to somehow, oh, I think my, my ID card slipped out of my pocket as I left the getaway car. So absurd. So that, that one was a, was a big one for me. And then also the videotape of the alleged shooting of a police officer on the streets of Paris right outside the Charlie Hebdo offices, uh, supposedly taken by happenstance by a bystander, uh, although I would be a little bit skeptical of that. In any case, that video, which was posted to the Internet and made the mainstream media, is purported to show the two terrorists dressed in black and wearing ski masks uh, shooting the police officer who's lying on the sidewalk. They supposedly shoot him in the head at point-blank range with an AK-47 assault rifle, which has a lot of power and a very large slug. And yet, the head suffers no apparent damage, no reaction to being shot, no blood, nothing like that. And we see a little dust bunny that's kicked up about one meter away from the head of the police officer, showing that the, the only rational interpretation of this footage is that we had two guys dressed up as terrorists uh, shooting blanks and they pretended to shoot the officer but very conscientiously made sure that they didn't shoot him in the head with a blank which is a, a paper or cotton wad that would hurt quite a lot it wouldn't be very pleasant so kindly they uh, they aimed about a meter away from his head shot up a dust money from the sidewalk and continued on their merry way uh, and that video uh, although it may not be absolutely 100% conclusive, just as the uh, claim that these guys, were, the terrorists, were caught due to dropping their ID card, that's not 100% proof that this is a false flag. You put those two together, along with a long, long, long list of other items, and the 
preponderance of evidence or the cumulative case, as David Ray Griffin put it in the New Pearl Harbor about 9-11, is utterly overwhelming. So I'm I'm convinced and would stake my life and anybody else's life that was dear to me on the fact that this was a false flag of some kind. I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Was It the French 9-11? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. With regard to this police officer, uh, did he really die? That's a good question. The official story is yes. And as I've, I've not been able to uncover any evidence of deception there. So one hypothesis that was offered by a colleague at Veterans Today was that the officer was shot shortly after the footage um, was taken. <laughs> I don't know. That strikes me as, as a, you know, but the, when these people orchestrate false flags, these folks have discovered that one way to make sure that the truth doesn't come out in such a way that anybody ever gets prosecuted is to stage it in such a way that if you discover the truth about it, nobody will believe you because it's too bizarre. So they, they have a sort of a, a, a Byzantine or a, a, an overly complex sort of Baroque approach to these false flags. Like with the JFK assassination, they sent every major league bad guy in the known universe to Dallas. You know, it was like a, you know, it was like a soldier of fortune convention there in Dallas and they were all standing along the the triple underpass. Uh, So uh, Chauncey Holt, the, the notorious CIA forger of documents has talked about this. Uh, And likewise with nine 11, a very elaborate ruse was created on nine 11. So elaborate that, People who are not aware of these things think you're crazy if you even talk about it. (laughs) So I think something similar may have happened at Charlie Hebdo. Precisely how it was done, I don't claim to know. But I would say that the fact that we have on videotape a fake shooting of a police officer supposedly happening immediately after the cartoonists were shot in the Charlie Hebdo building does raise questions about what actually happened in the Charlie Hebdo building and raises questions about this uh, alleged shooting of the police officer, whether he really was killed. There are a number of other cases where evidence has surfaced showing that people supposedly killed in these operations are not killed. Um, One very strong documentary piece of evidence showing that top authorities plan such things is the Operation Northwoods documents, in which uh, they they were planning to load 200 CIA agents uh, using false identities onto a supposed charter plane to fly to the Caribbean. And the CIA agents were then going to, their plane was going to cross paths with an unmanned drone. The drone would continue towards Cuba and be blown up, and it would be blamed on the Cubans. The plane full of CIA agents using false identities, pretending to be college students on vacation, would land at a military base, and the, the 200 CIA agents would get off. And the newspapers the next day would report that the evil Fidel Castro and his Cubans had shot down an American charter plane and killed 200 college students. The 200 names of these non-existent college students would be published in the newspapers and hundreds of alleged grieving relatives, all of them probably manufactured false identities as well, would be quoted in the mainstream media uh, lamenting the loss of their loved ones. So we know that in 1962, every member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, led by General Lemnitzer, signed off on this plan to have hundreds and hundreds of fake people involved in a mass casualty 
fake terror operation in which 200 non-existent people would be killed and mourned in all of the mainstream newspapers with relatives, non-existent relatives and friends mourning them as well. Given that, that proof of that event in 1962, we do have the, the document signed by McNamara. We know that's real. Nobody argues that it's not. Given that, it seems reasonable to assume that in mass casualty uh, false flag terror cases today, there may very well be many, many, many cases of people supposedly being killed who actually are not killed. What can you tell us about the accused suspects, Sharif and Saeed Kouashi? Hadn't they been tracked by French and U.S. intelligence for quite some time? Yes, the Kouachi brothers have been, they were on the radar of all of the world's major intelligence services, not just French intelligence, American intelligence, presumably Israeli intelligence, and we know British intelligence because the British mainstream media published that. So they, they were like the best-known terror patsies in the world. They were probably, you know, every time, they, they probably couldn't go to the bathroom without having a you know, microphone reporting what was going on. Uh, these guys were, uh, they, they had actually been uh, arrested for child pornography a few years back. Now, whether that was a real arrest, which was then made to go away when they agreed to serve as informants and essentially, you know, manipulated patsies of the intelligence services, or whether that was actually just a setup, uh, perhaps to control them, uh, we don't really know. But given that background, given that they were, you know, the, the best known terror suspects in the world, practically, uh, and they were supposedly making impossible trips. They supposedly went to Israel and then I think through Jordan to Syria to Yemen. Uh, they couldn't have done that. You can't, you can't go to Israel and then get into Syria. They won't take you. In none of these Arab countries will let you in if you have an Israeli stamp in your passport. So if they were working with the Israelis, the Israelis then would purposely not stamp their passport. Uh, something funny was going on with their passports. They were obviously intelligence agency manipulated patsies uh, on the radar screens of all the major intelligence services, and in the end, they were set up. Whether they, you know, it's conceivable they might have been trained to actually carry out a real shooting, but that seems unlikely. They don't seem to be remotely the kind of people who would have been that professional. So they were almost certainly just set up to be the patsies to take the blame for a shooting, assuming there was a real shooting that was carried out by professionals. <laughs> Who was the suicided French police detective, and what was he looking into? That's right. That, that's uh, that's a, one of the most amazing aspects of this case, another huge, huge uh, red flag. Uh, well, the suicided French detective, Eric Fadou, who turned up dead with a bullet in the head in the wee hours of the morning, uh, the night after the Charlie Hebdo initial shooting, uh, was looking into the family connections of uh, Sharb, the editor of Charlie Hebdo, and his alleged girlfriend, Jeanette Bougrab. Now, Jeanette Bougrab is a, a very major suspect in the Charlie Hebdo affair. She turned up immediately after uh, the Charlie Hebdo shooting, and she claimed that she was Sharb's girlfriend, and she mourned him in a histrionic way. Quite, uh, there seemed, you know, she, she looked like she was trying too hard. Uh, and at the same time, Sharp's family members and close personal friends all unanimously said that no, there was no such relationship. You know, she claimed she was his significant other, that they were basically a family. 
But everybody else, uh, ex- except for I think Sharp's parents who didn't know her but just kind of accepted her, her story initially, uh, everybody else who knew Sharp said they had never heard of this person. There was no such relationship. So Elric Fadu, the officer who was shot in the head for looking into this, uh, had found something very stunning and incriminating, apparently, about the fake relationship between the slain Charlie Hepto editor, Sharb, and his phony significant other, Jeanette Bougrab. Now, Bougrab is a professional, big-time Islamophobe who works with the right-wing, ultra-extreme Likudnik pro-Israel group in France that's associated with former President Sarkozy. She, she was actually an official in Sarkozy's administration, and she continues to work as part of that network, which makes her a de facto Israeli Mossad asset. And the speculation would be that uh, the failing magazine, Charlie Hebdo, which was not selling very many copies, even, the, even after it turned to extreme Islamophobia a couple of years ago, uh, they couldn't sell out their print runs. It was it was it had been going out of business slowly for many many years, and it was losing money with every issue. And none of these cartoonists had that much visible means of support. So somebody was funneling money into that magazine to keep it alive. And it appears that Jeanette Bougab may have been the operative, uh, an intelligence agent essentially, who created a fake relationship. It's called a legend in the intelligence business. Uh, Her legend was that she was supposedly uh, the significant other of Sharp, the editor of Charlie Hebdo. And this would have been used as a way they could have a joint bank account to transfer funds or they could meet to transfer funds. It appears that the Charlie Hebdo magazine was kept alive by some uh, anonymous benefactor. And the most likely hypothesis is that this was all essentially a setup for the big false flag on January 7th. Uh, so uh, it may be that Elric Fredou, the French officer, discovered some kind of actual evidence uh, that this was the case. And uh, he then was shot at about one in the morning in his office. Uh, his supervisor actually is a, a, apparently a suspect in this. The French investigators who've looked into this have argued that Gil Friedman is his name, was the director of the regional criminal police in Limoges and then became the direct superior of the officer Elric Fredou. He would have been in the same building. And uh, Friedman allegedly has Zionist uh, Sarkozy connections as well. So the fact that somebody, an officer investigating the case immediately afterwards that night discovered something so important that he had to stay up all night. He called his family and told them that. Uh, And then he's found with a bullet in the head. And nobody in his family believes it's suicide. And the French government won't release the autopsy to his family, even though they're required to. Something stinks about this. And this is another of those very, very strong pieces of evidence that together create a cumulative case that this was a false flag operation. Well, as well, uh, Kevin, you mentioned Sarkozy. Now, the other accused shooter, the guy that was uh, shot down at the, I guess it was a kosher deli, I believe evidence came out that in the past he had met personally with Sarkozy. That's right. His name was Koulibaly. Uh, He's an African Muslim. And a few years back, uh, he apparently was used as a player in a publicity stunt for Sarkozy. And we have the newspaper report showing him with Sarkozy in the picture. And it's one of those prearranged sort of photo op 
stories that's used for political purposes to show that Sarkozy is reaching out to this sort of, uh, you know, the French banlieue society, the African and Arab immigrants. Uh, now, the fact that he was used for that suggests that he was part of that network, that he was an asset of the Sarkozy-Israel-linked um, uh, network that is suspected of pulling off the Charlie Hebdo affair. I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Was It the French 9-11? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You begin your chapter, Pre and Post 9-11 False Flags, How Weapons of Mass Deception Are Interdependent, with a discussion of public myths or stories. How would you define myths in a modern political context? And do you uh, believe these myths need to be true? Well, certainly not. Uh, the word myth in popular parlance often means an untrue story, as in when you say that's just a myth. Uh, so it's well known that sacred narratives that uh, have very strong effects on, on cultures and societies don't have to be true. Whether they're true or not isn't the issue. But what is the issue is that people have to believe that they're true to a certain extent. Or if there's a, a debate about whether they're true, then they don't function really as a sacred myth anymore. And the person to look at here, I think, who's, who's you know done the most interesting work on this would be Philip Zelikow, the executive director of the 9-11 Commission. Dr. Zelikow, uh, who teaches at the University of Virginia, I believe, is a self-proclaimed expert on the creation and maintenance of public myths. Now, he describes public myths as stories about huge happenings in, in current events or, or recent history that are believed to be true, but that don't necessarily have to be true. And some examples of the kinds of public myths that he gives are one, the Pearl Harbor event, the alleged Japanese surprise attack at Pearl Harbor that killed 2,000 American sailors. This had such a powerful emotional effect on the American people that it created uh, a, a kind of a myth of uh, a pernicious Japanese surprise attack. And the meanings of that were that we Americans are no longer invulnerable because of our oceans, that these evil, strange-looking foreigners from a different culture can, you know, penetrate our defenses and wreak havoc, kill thousands of us. Uh, we need to take a very proactive role in the world. And so the effect of the Pearl Harbor myth, and it's a myth, it's false in the sense that it wasn't a surprise attack. It was provoked by the American administration's eight-point plan that was drawn up to make sure that the Japanese struck the first blow. And of course, the U.S. had broken their, their uh, code, as had the British, and could read everything and knew exactly when that attack was coming and intentionally left those sailors on the mothball battleships to be slaughtered while they, they brought the aircraft carriers out to sea. Those were militarily necessary. So this, the myth is that there was a pernicious Japanese surprise attack. That means that we need to basically go out and proactively rule the world to make sure that nothing like that ever happens again. And this myth was used to create the American empire of post-World War II. And Zolikow knows this. So it was really interesting they picked him to write the 9-11 Commission report, which is essentially another public myth with a sort of a new Pearl Harbor meme or, or, or uh, interpretation. That is, the whole point of this 
story that Zelikow wrote about 9-11, which of course probably was written before 9-11, it was probably the script for the events of 9-11, it was brought out after 9-11 as the 9-11 Commission report, that story is a public myth designed to convince Americans that they are likely to be attacked by terrorists with mass casualties. Uh, terrorist is synonymous with Muslim, pretty much. That's, that's what that book is really meant to do. So uh, the, the chapter I wrote in We Are Not Charlie Hebdo describes how to create this kind of myth, you need uh, to prepare the ground for it and then to keep the pot boiling afterwards. So, so the, the, the myth of the terror threat, the Islamic terror threat, was primarily created by the massive, overwhelming impact of the events of 9-11, which left uh, roughly half of the American people with clinical PTSD. So that was the, the centerpiece of the, the modern myth of Islamic terror. It was prepared by false flags or arranged events such as the African embassy bombings, the USS Cole bombing, and so on before 9-11. Now, not, not every attack on American interests was a, a false flag as far as we know, but, but there is evidence that those were to some extent. And then after 9-11, in order to keep the pot boiling, uh, somewhat smaller false flags had to be arranged in Bali, Madrid, London, uh, Mumbai, and elsewhere. And I think that the Charlie Hebdo events were a sort of a new centerpiece event designed to, to be sort of a new 9-11, a European 9-11, a French 9-11. And they've introduced uh, a new theme, or at least reinforced the old theme of they hate our freedoms. So the new big theme of the war on Islam is crazy Muslims hate cartoonists. And they are milking this for all it's worth. Pam Geller, the Israeli operative, is creating... Uh, draw Muhammad contests and things. They're having all these Draw Muhammad events. Uh, one one such event in Copenhagen uh, was shot up, supposedly, uh, on Valentine's Day, a month after the Charlie Hebdo shooting. And there have been a whole rash of these kinds of events and threats. Uh, recently in Texas, we had two supposed uh, Islamic gunmen shot down as they were supposedly planning to attack Pam Geller's uh, Draw Muhammad event. So that this uh, Muslims versus cartoons has become the new meme of the so-called war on terror. And the Charlie Hebdo event, which mobilized 5 million people in France to march, uh, was uh, one, a spectacular centerpiece event. And I predict that they're going to keep using this Muslims versus cartoons meme to keep the war on terror going for several years. Well, yes, that's right. You mentioned the incident in Copenhagen. And when that happened, I thought... Uh, oh my gosh, it's the same script, because they had a, a shooting, shooting up a cartoon event, and then they had a secondary shooting in front of a synagogue. And I thought, gee, it's the same script as Paris. That's right. Isn't that amazing? And it's not just Paris, but the precursor to 9-11, and we have a, a wonderful chapter by Dr. Laurent Guyano describing this in the book, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, uh, is, is a, a, an earlier event, was the, the Mohammed Merah shootings. This was during uh, Sarkozy's election campaign several years ago. There was a shooting of French military people. It was initially attributed to right-wing extremists, neo-Nazis, uh, witnesses said they had blue eyes and spider uh, tattoos, which is a marker of right-wing Nazi extremists. And then there was supposedly a second shooting in a Jewish school that killed uh, some teachers and students. And then suddenly the, the story was put out that they, both shootings were attributed to a guy named Mohammed Mera. And Mera was just summarily executed. They surrounded his apartment, shot him dead, and then they had a fake 
all-night vigil where they kept reporting breathlessly all night about how they had this guy holed up in this apartment. In fact, they'd already killed him. <laughs> uh, that, but that was used to, to create a television spectacular to galvanize France. So that particular event, Mohammed Mir event, united an attack on French national symbols, in this case the soldiers, followed by an attack on a Jewish target, the Jewish school. And Charlie Hebdo was the same thing. First, there was the attack on the national symbol of free speech, which the French Republic is proud of, which was the attack on Charlie Hebdo. And then there was the attack on the kosher deli, a Jewish target. And then, uh, one month later in Copenhagen, exactly the same script. There was an attack on a, an anti-Islam cartoon event, that is, an attack on free speech, supposedly. And then, that same night, an attack on a synagogue. Clearly, whoever is scripting these things, just like whoever wrote the anthrax letters that, that followed 9-11, you know, those letters said, death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. So whoever wrote those letters, and the U.S. government has certified that it was one or more American germ warfare specialists, not any Muslims. It was obviously an Islamophobic propagandist, uh, an anti-Muslim who wrote those letters. Same thing in France. The same kind of propagandists are uniting the national symbols of Western countries with Israel. And the purpose of this is all too obvious. It's to galvanize Western public opinion to support Israel's war against Islam, against its Arab neighbors, uh, and indeed against the entire region, uh, which, you know, that's, you're not allowed to say this in the mainstream body, but the truth is that there is a religious war going on between Zionism, which is it's a religion. I don't think it has anything to do with Judaism. I, I, I see it as a, a, for a new idolatry, a very strange kind of cult that is no longer Judaism. But unfortunately, a majority of the world's people who identify as Jewish support it. So this Zionist false religion is at war with the religion of Islam and with the people of the Middle East. The vast majority of the people of the Middle East do not accept the Zionist entity as a legitimate state. If you tune into Middle Eastern news broadcasts, they refer to it as the Sioni, the Zionist entity. They don't call it Israel because there's no such thing as Israel. Nobody in the Middle East accepts that there's a legitimate country called Israel. It's a crusader occupation uh, of Zionists. So, and of course, the Zionists have gotten themselves into this situation where they're at war with with uh, billions of neighbors. Uh, of course, have to resort to very extreme methods to try to keep their experiment going. And that's really the backdrop to this whole war on terror thing, I think, the most significant backdrop. It may be convenient to the military-industrial complex that they have this mythical enemy, but the real strategic significance of the war on terror, which is a disguised war on Islam, is that it's, it's really about the hardline Israelis corralling Western public opinion and Western militaries to destroy Israel's neighbors and to destroy Muslims and Islam uh, on behalf of Zionism. I mean, it, the, that's the bottom line of what all of this is really about. You, a few minutes ago, mentioned Philip Zelikow. You write in articles in uh, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, you write that in a 1998 article in Foreign Affairs, 9-11 Commission scriptwriter Philip Zelikow wrote about a coming terrorist attack that would destroy the World Trade Center. And he, of course, as you have pointed out, is occupied with the creation and maintenance of public myths. That's an interesting, quote-unquote, coincidence, isn't it? He, you can say that again. <laughs> yeah, he, he wrote that article and published it in 1998, uh, along with Ashton Carter, who's currently our Secretary of Defense. So 
Carter and Zelikow apparently knew that 9-11 was coming in 1998, because that's what this article, it's called, I, I think, Imagining uh, Catastrophic Terrorism, or Imagining the, the Catastrophic Event. So they're looking ahead to a catastrophic terror event that would completely change American society and culture. And it would divide time into a before and an after. The before world would be the world where we felt relatively safe and, you know, everything was going along sort of normally. And then the after would be a, a world of the war on terror, where we were paranoid, where we were worried about terrorists coming after us all the time. And, and in this article, uh, you know, he looks at all the political, psychological, cultural consequences of this kind of catastrophic terror event, such as, and then what he imagines is, the destruction of the World Trade Center. And, of course, he's using the 1993 bombing as his excuse for being able to imagine it that way. But it's uh, rather amazing that he, he called it right three years ahead of time. Uh, and this ties into the way that myths are, are used in, in cultures. You know, myths, especially founding myths, do divide time into before and after. And the after is the world of today, the world of our society as we know it. The myth legitimizes our society as it is today. The before is the nebulous world before the great mythic uh, creation event happened. With religious myths, and I'm not saying they're not true, a myth just means a sacred narrative. It could be true. Uh, the Christian myth divides the world into B.C. and A.D., uh, or common era today. The uh, myth of the creation of Islam, which I believe is historically fairly reliable, uh, divides the world into the Jahiliyyah, or time of ignorance, and then the time of the Islamic calendar, which begins with the immigration to Medina, or the Hijra. That's why it's called the Hijri calendar. Uh, in the United States of America, our public myths divide time into a before the United States of America existed, the colonial era, which seems like kind of another world, and the history of the United States, and the myths of our founding, our heroic founding fathers rising up in rebellion against the British, and so on. These these outlandish, outsized stories are a sacred narrative that grounds our cultural experience of the United States of America. And some of the aspects of our myths are pretty bizarre. You know, Washington saying, I cannot tell a lie, I chopped down the cherry tree, and, you know, throwing a silver dollar across the Delaware. Typically, these, these mythic uh, sacred narratives uh, do get a little exaggerated. They don't typically follow historical reality really closely and tightly. In any case, the myth of the founding of the United States justifies the country that we have today. The myth of the founding of Christianity justifies Christian culture. The myth of the founding of Islam justifies Islamic culture. And the myth of Pearl Harbor justifies American imperialism going out and taking over the world post-World War II. And the myth of the so-called war on terror, which is really the myth of 9-11, justifies the current destruction of liberty the destruction of economies with too much military spending and indebtedness to the international banksters, uh, everything that we're experiencing today, all of the things that have gotten so much worse since 9-11 are justified due to this myth that we're supposedly under assault by Islamic terrorists. I'm speaking with author and radio host Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show, We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Was It the French 9-11? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Could you talk about the myth of the lone nut? Uh, yes, that's that's a that's another interesting public myth, isn't it? You know, Alan Dulles, the former director of the CIA, once remarked 
uh, and I think this was actually after the JFK assassination, I think he remarked immediately that, uh, you know, it's very interesting that in virtually all of these cases of assassinations of prominent political figures, uh, the the case always is solved in such a way as to reveal that the, the killer was a lone nut. Invariably, it turns out to be a lone nut. And that was that's Alan Dulles chewing on his pipe and giving us some of his wisdom. He, of course, was on the Warren Commission, and he, he was the CIA's link to the Warren Commission. And he was also a perpetrator of the JFK assassination, for what that's worth. But yeah, we were told in the United States that all of these assassinations of leading political figures throughout history, and especially U.S. history, are always done by lone nuts. Even when the official story admits that there are uh, conspiracies, such as the shooting of Abraham Lincoln, it's remembered in the mythic American consciousness as being a lone nut. John Wilkes Booth, a disaffected actor who shot Lincoln. And so that's, that is the public myth that governs the way we react to these acts of political violence. And the authorities who are in charge of creating our political mythology for us, they're self-appointed platonic guardians of our culture. You know, Plato said that every culture needs guardians who are kind of above the law, just devote their whole lives to protecting the society against enemies foreign and domestic. Well, that's what these people have appointed themselves to do, and they think they're above the law. So they've used this myth of the lone nut so that they can create an act of violence, or sometimes one maybe just happens, but mostly they create the acts of violence. They assassinate the people that they feel they need to assassinate. They create terrorist incidents when they feel that's useful for manipulating public opinion. And then typically they find an individual to blame for it. And whether it's Lee Harvey Oswald for killing Kennedy, and even with 9-11, they essentially convince the American people, by way of the American public mythology, that Osama bin Laden was the lone nut behind 9-11. Of course, we all know there were 19 alleged hijackers and so on. But bin Laden became the mythic villain, even though he denied and deplored 9-11. After it happened, he repeatedly gave interviews in Pakistan to newspapers saying that he had nothing to do with it, that this was un-Islamic to kill innocent people. And he said people in the United States with their own agenda did this, not me. He's made that very, very clear repeatedly after 9-11. But perhaps because our media is controlled or perhaps because we have this myth of the lone nut, find somebody to blame. And, you know, 9-11 happened three minutes after the TV broadcast started showing the horrific images of 9-11. The newscaster started chanting, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, Bin Laden. So this inculcated the mythic stereotype of Bin Laden being the sort of lone nut or the villain behind 9-11. So that's what they do. They basically take these very complex, mostly carefully orchestrated and manipulative acts of political violence that they themselves are mainly perpetrating. And then they pick an individual, uh, or in some cases a few individuals, uh, like the Koachi brothers in France and, and their friend Koulibaly, uh, to hold up as villains for everyone to hate. And they give us you know, the five minutes or 15 minutes of Orwellian hate. You know, George Orwell's 1984, the population was brainwashed by being driven into theaters and forced to engage in this you know, 15 minutes of orchestrated rage and hate against the villain du jour. And so that's, that's the way they manipulate and corral us. The Western publics and world publics are really herds of sheep being corralled by these uh, self-proclaimed uh, sheepdogs. And that is indeed what some of these people call themselves. The special operations people who do a lot of these killings think of themselves as sheepdogs. They have the right to kill because they're protecting their flocks. I like your concept of maintaining the myth. And in this instance, the myth to be maintained is the myth of 9-11. Well, then, would you consider the main myth of 9-11 to be the claim that the United States was attacked by Muslim terrorists? 
Absolutely. That's that's a very good summary. I, sh- I should be interviewing you. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, Kevin. <laughs> you write in the book about the interrelatedness of these terrorist events, events that today are practically becoming a daily occurrence. Would you suggest that in order to understand terrorism, we look for patterns? Oh, of course. Uh, uh, now, those folks who are in charge of trying to protect the public from this dangerous knowledge will tell you that if you're looking for patterns, you're just dot connecting and you are therefore a quote unquote conspiracy theorist. The two leading terms that they use to try to stop us from thinking are conspiracy theorist and anti-Semite. Now the anti-Semite thing is strange because most of the time, you know, you could be talking about an event that really doesn't obviously have a whole lot of relationship to Israel, much less to Jewish people, but they'll still you know, call you an anti-Semite. I was being called an anti-Semite when I was talking about 9-11 and never even brought up anything about Israel or Zionism. I was just talking about Bush and Cheney doing 9-11. And a huge campaign came out against me trying to make me out to be an anti-Semite. And I, I scratched my head over that one. In any case, they go after us as, as conspiracy theorists, dot connectors, in order to prevent us from making these connections and seeing these patterns. You know, when you see three terror events, one after the other, two in France, one in Denmark, with an attack on national symbols followed immediately by an attack on Jewish symbols. I mean, how, how stupid can you be to not connect the dots? Um, you know, and likewise with the, the whole history of, let's say, war trigger events, noticing that every major American war since the Mexican War has been sold to the public by a spectacular, either fake or orchestrated enemy attack. Every single war and much of this is admitted to even by mainstream historians. So how can you not connect those dots? How can you not see those patterns? Um, I guess if it's more comfortable not to, and the authorities will threaten you, and they'll threaten to make you unemployable and to attack you and throw nasty names at you if you do see the patterns. But I guess you have to decide then you know, whether you want to be a, a thinking, conscious individual uh, or, you know, you want to take the red pill and see the truth, see how things really work, and, and go ahead and connect those dots, or take the blue pill and retreat into the matrix of illusion that our masters of the universe have created for us. Well, you mentioned the uh, the criticism of uh, being called an anti-Semite. What I've always found very strange about that accusation is that Arabs are Semites. It doesn't Indeed. make any sense. Indeed. And that's the subject of one of the essays in We Are Not Charlie Hebdo. It's by Ibrahim Soudi, uh, who is uh, uh, an Arab Muslim. And Ibrahim is, uh, he's, he's very annoyed that when he tries to talk about the uh, d- demolition of the World Trade Center, for example, he, he's a PhD structural engineer, one of the most qualified people in the world to analyze what happened to the Trade Center Towers. When he tries to talk about that, he gets called an anti-Semite, and he is a Semite. A, a Semite is somebody whose native language is a Semitic language. That's all it is. It's not a racial group. Uh, you know, race is a, is a very loose fictional concept. There's not really any such thing as race. You can do DNA analysis. That's a lot more complicated. But ethnicity or, or language is a real category. So the word Semite just means anybody who speaks a Semitic language. And that would be Arabs, mainly. Uh, Arabic is by far the most widely spoken Semitic language, spoken by more than 200 million people as their first language. And hundreds of millions more 
as a second language to some extent. I speak Arabic, so I'm a Semite, I guess, or a cousin or second cousin, twice removed of the Semites. But the reason that we've got this bizarre conflation of Judaism and Semitism, which is not true at all in any way, shape, or form, is that the idiot racists uh, running the universities in the 19th century in Europe came up with this weird you know, racial uh, categorization of humanity. And they imagined that linguistic categories tie into racial categories. So for them, the Jews who supposedly originally came from Palestine, where Semitic languages are spoken, and spoke supposedly Hebrew, which at that time was just an ancient language, and nobody spoke it, except you know, scholarly, very few scholarly people, uh, that these people were somehow racially tied into their language category, the Semitic language. So that was the whole basis of uh, European racism against Jews, which was not sensible because the vast majority of European Jews are just as European as any other European. Their origins are absolutely white European. They, they had no more ancestors from Palestine than any of us did, for the most part. Most, you know, the Ashkenazi Jews are European Jews, not Palestinian Jews, not Middle Eastern Jews. But, of course, they maintained a sacred language that was Semitic, and that's Hebrew, uh, just as so many of us. I'm in the United States. I use Arabic as a sacred language when I read Quran. Um, does that make me a Semite? I don't know. In any case, the racists said that Jews are Semites and they have long hooked noses and that ties in with their having been Semitic. Complete nonsense. Racist BS. Uh, but somehow that stuck. The anti-Jewish prejudices remained uh, connected with this notion that Jews are Semites, which is not true. And we were then given this notion that anti-Jewish prejudice is a very, very bad thing. And let's call it anti-Semitism, even though that makes no sense whatsoever. Let's stick with what the racists erroneously believed in the 19th century. So it's, it's foolish. Uh, and Ibrahim Sudi makes this point that he's the one who's the Semite. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, he's not Semitic in any way, shape, or form. Sure, he speaks Hebrew, and that is historically a Semitic language. So he's as Semitic as Kevin Barrett is, because both of us speak a Semitic language. But both of us are as white as whatever. You know, most of our ancestors came from Europe. We have pale skin and light hair uh, and light eyes. We're, you know, genetically, we're Europeans. Wasn't, wasn't Netanyahu born in the United States? Yeah, he was, he was actually a furniture salesman, I think, in Pennsylvania for a while. Uh, and he speaks perfect English, which is one reason he gets away with murder, literally and figuratively. He's, he's a very slick uh, con man. Uh, just a psychopathic liar, uh, one of the most unpleasant individuals ever to hold high office in any country. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, he's certainly not Semitic, but he's certainly going to try to convince you that anybody searching for the truth about anything remotely related to uh, Zionism uh, is quote-unquote anti-Semitic. Kevin Barrett will be speaking in Berkeley this coming Saturday, July 25th at 1 p.m. at the Fellowship of Unitarian Universalists at Cedar and Benita in Berkeley. This event will be live-streamed at noliesradio.org. I will be tabling at this event for Guns and Butter. That's Saturday, July 25th, 1 p.m. at the BFUU. Sunday, July 16th, Kevin will be speaking with Barbara Honecker in Santa Cruz at 7.30 p.m. at the Resource Center for Nonviolence, 612 Ocean Street, Santa Cruz. Complete information on Kevin Barrett's book tour can be found at truthjihad.blogspot.com. Kevin Barrett, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Can't wait to see you. There's something here.
I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Barrett. Today's show has been We Are Not Charlie Hebdo. Was it the French 9-11? Dr. Barrett has taught Arabic, Islamic studies, folklore, African literature, French, humanities, and other subjects at several American colleges and universities, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison and San Francisco State University. He is the editor of two interfaith anthologies, 9-11 and American Empire, Volume 2, Christians, Jews, and Muslims Speak Out, and We Are Not Charlie Hebdo, Freethinkers Question the French 9-11. He is the author of Truth, Jihad, and Questioning the War on Terror. Kevin Barrett has appeared many times on Fox, CNN, PBS, and other broadcast outlets, and is a frequent guest on international broadcast media, including Press TV, Russia Today, and Al Atiyah. He has lectured extensively in Morocco, Turkey, and Iran, as well as the U.S. and Europe. Kevin Barrett's radio programs are archived at noliesradio.org. Visit his website at truthjihad.com. That's truthjihad.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Visit gunsandbutter.org to sign up for our email list and receive our newsletter. Guns and Butter Online now includes a new website, an active Twitter feed, show archives, and a blog. Follow us at G&B Radio. Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying Look what decides yourself 